this Sunday we begin what in the liturgical calendar is called ordinary season. And that's what the green symbolizes, a time of growth. There's actually nothing ordinary about ordinary season at all. But it's a time for us to grow in grace and grow in our knowledge and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. About two weeks ago, I received a text message from a friend who lives out of state letting me know that um, he was, in his words, uh, heading out of the church and out of his marriage. And I was deeply grieved and we had some interaction over that. Um, I was grieved both for what I knew this would mean for him and also for his wife and also for the many people who have been touched by him and his ministry. Uh, I was also uh, grieved because it brought up a, a memory of a, of a very, very close friend um, who uh, had a similar path uh, almost 20 years ago now, although it, it feels like it was just yesterday. Uh, this friend I was very close with. We were best friends in college. Uh, we roomed together in medical school. And then we ended up serving as missionaries in, in Kenya together. Uh, he was the best man at my wedding. I was the best man at his, his wedding. And um, when he told me that he would be uh, leaving his family and his faith, as well as the mission field, um, that was followed by weeks and months, hours of prayer and conversation with him, uh, trying to understand where he was with his heart and um, encouraging him uh, to return to a deeper relationship with the Lord. That was ultimately unsuccessful. In the process of my conversation with him, uh, he shared with me that um, he had come to know the Lord in, as, a, as a teenager, primarily because uh, he was hoping the Lord would, would deliver him from a, a particular temptation that was very distressing to him. As he uh, grew in his faith, though, uh, that didn't happen. And he continued to be troubled by, uh, by these temptations. And uh, so um, he decided to get married, thinking that that would uh, help uh, deliver him from that particular temptation. And, and that also was unsuccessful. And so finally, according to him, he decided to go on the mission field where he would be removed from uh, sources of temptation. And when finally uh, that didn't work either, he came to the conclusion that Christianity just wasn't working for him. Um, uh, and that um, reminded me that confusion or lack of clarity on the nature of temptation, sin, and forgiveness uh, can rob us of joy and ultimately can shipwreck our faith. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time this morning to go over that since our passages from the lectionary that we've read really do focus on that theme of sin and forgiveness. Uh, for some of you, this may be a, a well-worn path, um, but hopefully as we attune our ears to what the Word of God has to say, it will remind us, keep us close to Him and, and keep us from straying into, into error and ultimately into a path that takes us away from the Lord. I'd like to start with a simple statement that temptation is not sin. That may seem pretty obvious, uh, but sometimes we do get that confused. I think my friend um, 
had some confusion there ultimately as well. Um, Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. Hebrews 4 says that Jesus in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So it's not sin to be tempted. Uh, we have sources of temptation, classically, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, in our baptism and confirmation proclamation of faith, we're, we're asked three questions. Uh, do you renounce the devil and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? The appropriate response is, I renounce them. And you can say that if you want. I'll, say, I'll ask again, do you renounce the devil and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? I Great, I renounce them. Do you renounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of this world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I renounce them. I renounce them. Do you renounce the sinful desires of the flesh that draw you from the love of God? I renounce them. It probably goes without saying, but I should say it anyhow. Uh, God doesn't tempt us. Uh, God is, in James 1, says, um, uh, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. God is not a source of temptation. That seems kind of obvious. By corollary, though, a desire that is contrary to the revealed will of God is not from God. So if you are experiencing a desire that's contrary to the revealed word of God, you can be assured that God is not the source of that desire. God promises to uh, help us when we're tempted but nowhere in his world, word does he promise to remove temptation from us completely. We pray in the prayer that the Lord taught us, lead us not into temptation. The Lord doesn't lead us into temptation, but he doesn't promise to remove it entirely. Hebrews 2, for because he, Jesus himself, has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. The assumption is, is that on our walk with the Lord, our relationship with Jesus, we're going to experience temptation as well. And Jesus, because he's been tempted, is able to help us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Temptations will come, but God will provide a way uh, ultimately for us. I'd like to stop for a moment and, and make a few comments about the nature of sin. Uh, sometimes there's some confusion about that. Uh, there are sinful behaviors, but sin is more than just behaviors. We talk about sin being in thought, word, and deed. Uh, later in the service when we pray our prayer of confession, we'll say those words. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we've done, by what we've left undone. And it's really ultimately about love. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And ultimately, sin is a condition of the heart, not just behaviors, words, and thoughts. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, uh, Jesus said. Now, the way that we overcome sin in our lives, the way we address sin in our lives is through confession and repentance. Uh, those are uh, unusual words to hear outside of a church or religious setting, 
uh, I'll talk a little bit about what is meant by those. Uh, confession is pretty straightforward. It's, uh, it's owning up to what we've done. Uh, now, I, it's worth uh, mentioning though uh, what confession is because there's a lot of stuff that goes around as a confession or admission that is really what I would call sort of conditional pseudo-confessions. Uh, admitting a possible offense. Uh, I'm sorry if I have offended you, okay? That is not a confession. Uh, there's a condition there, and there's really, really just admitting to the possibility that I might have offended you, even though you probably maybe didn't have any good reason to be offended in the first place, okay? So that is common, but that is not what we're talking about in terms of confession. Um, another version of a, of a pseudo-confession or a conditional pseudo-confession is admitting, admitting wrongdoing, but also having an excuse or blaming someone else. In our, um, in our Old Testament reading this morning, we had a good example of that. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me to be with, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So Adam is a complete weasel in this story. I mean, he throws Eve under the bus and then even seems to, you know, to, to divert the blame to God himself. Well, you gave her to me, sort of defective equipment here. And, uh, and Eve isn't much better. She throws the snake under the bus. That is not the kind of confession that leads us to uh, victory over, over sin in our lives. Uh, what God is looking for, what we need for spiritual benefit to us is unconditional confession, one that accepts responsibility, one that recognizes the harm to others, but also the offense against God. And third, one that recognizes that this is a heart condition and, and that there's a need for forgiveness. That's the kind of confession that does us spiritual good and, um, and ultimately is pleasing to God. Repentance is layered on top of that. Repentance is more than just admitting wrongdoing. It's more than just confession. It's an actual turning away from sin and turning towards righteousness. So it's more than words. It's also deeds. Uh, I'd like to take a slight detour here to talk about the issue of repeated sin, habitual sin, addiction, and sinful lifestyles. Um, sometimes we're weighed down heavily because we have confessed a sin. We have repented, and yet we find ourselves doing the same thing over and over again. And it can be, be, be discouraging. It can um, uh, help us, one, uh, cause us to, to wonder about our, our spiritual state and um, whether the Lord is, uh, is, is really giving us the, the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin. Um, what I'd like to say from a practical standpoint is it's important to discern the difference between some of these, um, between repeated sin, habitual sin, addiction, and a sinful lifestyle. The first question, diagnostic question, I think it's worth asking is, is has this become a pattern of behavior? There's one thing that, you know, you, you've, you've sinned the same sin, you know, more than once. Uh, once it becomes a habitual pattern, though, um, 
then there's some additional challenges there. Um, the second is, is this something I accept or reject? If it's something I'm doing continually and I'm, I'm okay with that, um, then that's become a, a sinful lifestyle and that, that needs uh, a radical repentance. If it's something that I reject, but I find myself back in over and over again, that's a somewhat of a, of a different spiritual situation, requires a somewhat different spiritual remedy. And the third thing is, is this something I've tried and failed to change? And that's where we're getting more into the realm of addiction and, um, and perhaps a, a habitual sin. Uh, and those are cases that uh, require some specific work. In addition to confession and repentance, uh, overcoming addiction or habitual sin uh, can be very challenging. Um, requires dependency on God. And I would recommend the 12 steps as a spiritual discipline. Now there's some language in there that is not specific to Christ. Uh, and it was uh, written that way by believers to make it more accessible to those who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But you can easily insert um, uh, Jesus Christ for uh, your higher power and uh, the God of your understanding as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Trinity, uh, who you are growing in your understanding of. Um, dependency on God is critical for breaking cycles, habits of sin or addiction. Support from others is also critical. Very few people are able to escape from addiction or patterns, deep, deeply entrenched patterns of sin without help from others support from others. And then it requires radical honesty with ourselves and others. And um, I wish I had more time to go into greater detail, but um, I wanna uh, say that, that um, we need to have compassion for those who are struggling with addictions or, addiction or habitual sins because it requires, um, it requires effort uh, to, um, to overcome and it requires grace from the Lord. So what does repentance mean though in the context of addiction or habitual sin? First, just to acknowledge that, um, that conviction is a work of the Holy Spirit. If someone is in addiction and they, they feel bad about that, they, you know, you know, they wake up the next morning and they, and they feel guilty, you know, that's, a, that's in some way a work of the Holy Spirit because people who do not have the Spirit in their lives, they don't feel guilty about stuff, they just do it. And just to realize that even if that person, even if you have not been able to break out of this habit of sin, the fact that your conscience is quickened is, is a work of the Holy Spirit. And the second is to realize that repentance is from the heart, even if the, the will is slow to follow. Uh, repentance begins with a heart attitude. Um, the work of the Holy Spirit uh, uh, is happening and it may take time. It may take time. We have to be patient with ourselves and with others uh, even as we help ourselves and others to get the help that they need. Forgiveness. Um, there's a lot that could be said about forgiveness, obviously, uh, but I'd like to say from our, um, for our time this morning that God is inclined to forgive. In our psalm this morning, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The point is that God is inclined to forgive. 
that's what he likes to do. Um, and uh, as a corollary to that, um, in our walk with the Lord, our sanctification, our, our growing in personal holiness is, is really about experiencing and growing in God's grace uh, as opposed to achieving sinless perfection in this life. And I think that's a, a fundamental understanding that can really help us as we grow in the Lord, that the Christian life is about experiencing, about growing in God's grace as the Holy Spirit brings to our mind the areas in which we have sinned. We confess, we repent, and we receive God's grace and forgiveness, even if we either um, fall into the same sin or other sins, uh, it's a, it's a growing in grace rather than trying to achieve some level of, of, of personal uh, perfection uh, in this life, if that makes sense. And I think that's where my, both of my friends have, um, have struggled as they're trying to achieve a level of personal perfe perfection and failing in that, and in their mind, Christianity isn't working for them. Christianity is working just fine for them because the whole goal, the whole purpose is that we would go grow in the grace of God. This uh, gospel reading um, has a, a really challenging passage in it. Um, the unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so uh, our time would not be complete unless we addressed that. Um, uh, just to read the passage, uh, the part of the passage, Mark uh, 3, verses 38, uh, uh, 28 through 30, Truly I say to you also, be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now in, in addressing this passage, the first thing is any communication, whether written or verbal, uh, needs to be understood in its context. Otherwise, we can't really understand what's being communicated. And that's true of Scripture as well. From the Old Testament through the New Testament, the message over and over is that God is merciful, God, that for, God forgives. Uh, God sent Jesus for the whole purpose of, of saving the world. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the whole message. Uh, that's the context for this passage. There's also an immediate context uh, in which uh, Jesus said these words. And as we look at this passage and what it means, we have to interpret it accurately, narrowly, and in context. Now, the context here is that Jesus was addressing the scribes and the Pharisees. He wasn't addressing believers. So whatever blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, the unforgivable sin, uh, it doesn't seem like it applies to believers, at least not in this context and not in the greater context of Scripture. Second, Jesus was responding specifically to their attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan or Beelzebul. Uh, this is a, a very specific thing that he was responding to. Uh, Matthew uh, 12, which is a parallel passage, gives a little bit more context to it. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? 
But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So they're seeing the work of the Holy Spirit in delivering man from demonic oppression, healing him. Everyone else can see what's going on, and yet they refuse to believe. Earlier in, in the passage in Mark, in, in Mark uh, chapter 3, verse 11, it says the unclean spirits were crying out, you're the son of God. I mean, it was pretty obvious that this is not uh, the work of Satan. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the scribes clearly saw the work of God, uh, but they rejected the truth. It wasn't that they were mistaken or confused. They could see what was going on, just like everyone else could, but they were intentionally hardening their hearts against the truth and rejecting it. So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit uh, the term blasphemy is, a, is not one that we use every day. Um, uh, it means slander or to speak against falsely. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable in that it reflects a condition of the heart, a condition of the heart that rejects God's goodness, his love, and grace. And just, uh, just indulge me for a moment um, to go a little bit more deeply in this passage uh, that uh, the Greek word uh, that's translated guilty of is a word enikos, and that can be translated either guilty of or in danger of or subject to or liable to. So what, um, what these people who were blaspheming the Holy Spirit were guilty of or subject to or in danger of was another Greek phrase, ahionion hemartema, eternal sin. It's translated very specifically. Note that Jesus doesn't say eternal guilt or eternal punishment. So the reason why uh, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness is because he is guilty of or liable to or in danger of an eternal sin, a sin that goes on and on. There seems to be at least the possibility there then of forgiveness if the blasphemous heart attitude changes and is no longer eternal, okay? What Jesus is talking about is a permanent condition of the heart for which there's no forgiveness. I like the way that uh, Walter Wessel has put this in his commentary. Surely what Jesus is speaking of here is not an isolated act, but a settled condition of the soul the result of a long history of repeated and willful acts of sin. And if the person involved cannot be forgiven, it is not so much that God refuses to forgive as it is the sinner refuses to allow him. Ryle's famous words are great reassurance to any who might be anxious about this sin. Uh, there is such a thing as a sin which is never forgiven, but those who are troubled by it are most unlikely to have committed it. On the other hand, those who actually do commit the sin are so dominated by evil that it is unlikely they would be aware of it. Uh, bottom line, if you're troubled by this passage and you think that you might have at some point blasphemed against the Holy Spirit or committed an unforgivable sin, you can be rightly assured that this does not apply to you. Uh, the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart uh, to examine yourself and you can be fully assured of God's grace, love, and mercy. The goal of our Christian life, the goal of our relationship with the Lord, the end of man 
in terms of glorifying God is victory over sin. Our struggle with sin is temporary. In our New Testament reading this morning uh, from 2 Corinthians, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are, un are eternal. These struggles that we have uh, with sin uh, and all the other struggles that we have in life, these are, these are transient. They're passing away. They're not going to go on forever. But the glory that we will experience when we see Christ face to face, uh, that's eternal. Our victory over sin is assured. In justification, we were declared righteous uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ and given freedom from the punishment of sin. In this uh, process of, of growing in holiness, of sanctification, growing in grace, we are gradually uh, gaining freedom from the power of sin. And in that day when we see Christ face to face and we are like him, glorification, we will be freed ultimately from the presence of sin. This final redemption from sin is the foundation of our Christian hope. As the psalmist wrote, and we read this morning, O Israel, or I would say Northside Parish, hope in the Lord. For, the, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel. He will redeem you from all your iniquities. Amen.